0: You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Holstein. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com.
1: Amen. Well, good morning. Good to see you today. I love to worship with you. Um, Always good to see uh, new faces, meet new friends. And if we've not met, uh, my name is Mike Lovely. I have the privilege of... uh, Being the lead pastor of this great church, um, a generous church. And I say this um, with a sense of pastoral pride uh, for my First Baptist family. Uh, We try to put before you regularly uh, opportunities and ways and pathways for you to practice gospel generosity. Uh, And we have missions partners literally around the world, and uh, it's always good to meet. Uh, new friends uh, that have the same heart and the same passion that we do for the sake of the gospel. Uh, and if you were here, if you were not here last week and missed uh, our presentation of Provision Partners, I want to to, to kind of point your direction over to that wall. I know some of you can't see it from where you're sitting right now, but uh, we highlighted four areas. Uh, tangible ways in which you can give toward the Joshua Project. We recognize that many of you have been giving for a long time now toward the Joshua Project, but these are some areas uh, where you can give. And uh, I know for a fact that we had some reach out this past week and say, "I want to, I want to sponsor one of those kids' rooms." And uh, so there are ways for you to do that. Uh, and if you missed last week's presentation from John Williamson, who's been the administrator of Joshua Project for uh, several years now, in fact. Um, then you can uh, see that online. Uh, the video of that section of the service was is placed online now. It's on the app as well uh, through the Joshua Project page. And so I would encourage you to check that out and prayerfully consider what part God would have you play as we are nearing completion. Uh, Lord willing, we'll be in that, that new space in the fall of this year. And so I hope that you are praying about that and God's timing and, and all of that. Uh, well, I guess today really officially kind of kicks off the summer, right? Uh, Memorial Day weekend, and uh, with that in mind, I just I do want to encourage you to pray for kids going to camp, especially. I know if uh, if we were to all share our testimonies uh, this morning of faith in Christ, many of you would say it was through a camp ministry that you came to know Christ uh, as your Savior. Uh, and if it wasn't uh, in that particular setting, maybe God planted seeds, gospel seeds, in your life, in that context. And so uh, I know it's important to, uh, to some of our own people serving in camp ministry. Uh, two of my adult kids have served in camp ministry. Um, we've got uh, Jaden Servati, one of our staff kids, uh, took off the day after her high school graduation to go serve in camp ministry, uh, in Van, Texas, uh, this summer. And so. Uh, Very, very important. Those are not just weeks that we stick on the calendar so kids have something to do, okay? Um, There's some sacrifice involved in that, and so I I hope that you uh, realize uh, how important these weeks are in their lives. Uh, I look forward to going down uh, every evening to kids' camp. Our kids will just be at Lake Levon. Uh, encampment uh, outside of Princeton. And so I drive down every evening and uh, lead church group devotions down there with them and uh, always enjoy getting to hang out with the kids uh, in that setting. And so looking forward to a great couple of weeks. Well, we're in John chapter six this morning. If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn there with me. And in our current uh, sermon series, Person of Interest, uh, we're wrapping up John chapter six today. We'll be in verses 60 through 71. Uh, This is a sermon series that we started actually uh, at the end of last year, and so it's taken us this long just to get through chapter 6 of John's Gospel. Uh, And I would remind you that uh, we're going to pause now uh, after today, and uh, we're going to look at the Psalms this summer, a summer in the Psalms, and we're going to be looking at the different genres of, uh, of Psalms that are found there. Uh, And then we'll return, Lord willing, in the fall uh, with John chapter 7 and continue our study of John's gospel. But uh, in both uh, John chapter 5 and chapter 6, uh, we find this narration of a rejection of Jesus. In the earlier chapters, we find that that, that Jesus was more broadly accepted; uh, it had kind of a, a positive tone and a sense. But then something shifted, something changed as we moved into chapter five. And uh, among the Judeans there in John chapter five, we see Jesus uh, kind of against the world. That's where we start to see some opposition uh, to his uh, to his purpose, to his mission, uh, to his message, and. Uh, and so we remember there, there was a man healed who didn't even really have uh, much of an interest in following Jesus. And then in John chapter 6, where we've been for the last several weeks, the rejection of Jesus doesn't, doesn't come from like a hostile enemy, but from people who have followed and sought after Jesus, or people that we would say were at least a part of the crowd. Uh, and so we find this warning, not really... Uh, to those who are outside, um, opposing Jesus from the outside, as it were, but really as a warning to those who are following Jesus, who are in that crowd, urging us to continue following Jesus even when it becomes difficult, when it becomes challenging. And yet, the thing I love about this section of scripture is that it doesn't drive us to a place of despair, uh, to discourage us. in fact, uh, what we what we do is we find ourselves resting upon the promises of God. Uh, it's about His strength in, uh, in in keeping us where we need to be in our relationship with Him, and so we don't have to to fret and wonder if we are strong enough to resist the urge uh, and the temptation to walk away from Jesus. We're living in a strange time when it's not uncommon uh, to hear of fairly prominent Christian leaders. Uh, who have been uh, platformed regularly for some time now, deconstructing their faith. You hear about this fairly regularly. Josh Harris, among others. And, uh, And so... Uh, What what does that really look like? And maybe you're someone who maybe grew up in the church and around church, and and you would say that there was a point in your life earlier when you made a a profession of faith, but maybe in recent years you've been really struggling with some doubts about who God is and about His love for us, and is it real? And maybe you've kind of reached a place in your life where like some of these people who've deconstructed their faith as as if we can really do that, um, and you're saying, well, God hasn't really performed in the way that I had hoped that he would. Uh, my life isn't turning out the way that I had hoped that it would. Uh, and so maybe you find yourself like, like some of these people in the crowd there with Jesus in John chapter 6. Um, you, you attend church at least semi-regularly. Uh, you're hanging around. Uh, you maybe have an interest or a curiosity about the things of God and, and about the Bible and all that. Maybe you're kind of looking at Jesus as, as, uh, as someone who can maybe do something for you. Uh, it's, it's not uncommon for us as pastors to have conversations with people and we find out, well, they're in the midst of a crisis or they really have this big need over here. I need this promotion or I need this thing to work out. And so I'm, I'm trying to get a little Jesus in the mix you know, in hopes that, that things will go the way that I want them to as if we can have kind of a utilitarian relationship with the Lord when, in fact, he doesn't desire that at all. And so we really find... Um, Really three groups of people, two larger groups of people, and we're going to look at, at the final verses of John chapter 6 in maybe a little bit different way today. But uh, for those who do believe, the words of Jesus here are spirit and life, and they assure us of the reality of our faith and drive us away from that, uh, uh, that possibility of, uh, of apostasy, And so fundamentally, we would say that the message of our text today in these final 11 verses of John chapter 6 is that Jesus graciously preserves his people by promises, by assurances and warnings. So let's look at it together, picking it up in verse number 60 of John chapter 6. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. It's not uncommon in our culture to hear the two words, I'm offended. I'm offended. It seems like we hear it all the time. Uh, Those two words have, in a way, become the cry of this generation. If I disagree with something that you say and it hurts my feelings, then I say I'm offended. And that means that you need to change both your language and the underlying opinion that offends me. I have a right not to be offended. (laughs) And so reality then must conform itself to my desire to not have my feelings hurt. Or to be told that I'm wrong in anything that I think or in any way that I choose to behave. But understand, people didn't just start getting offended by things in this generation. And the reason I say that is theological in nature. You see, our sinful human nature makes us react against anything that would challenge or undermine our deep desire to be our own sovereign. It's a lordship issue. It's why we sometimes say that those who profess to be atheists aren't atheists because they become fully convinced that there is no God. It's because they don't want there to be a God. Because then that would mean I am somehow, as a created being, accountable to that God. Throughout John chapter 6, we see the crowd around Jesus. They seem to be growing increasingly irritated with him when he refuses to conform to their desires. It's not unlike people today. This Jesus thing isn't working out quite, quite like I thought it would. I was kind of hoping that my life would get easier when I committed my life to Jesus, or I started attending church, or I started reading my Bible, or, or whatever, and it hasn't really happened that way. In fact, I lost my job, and, and I've got messed up relationships more now than ever, and, and all of these sorts of things. That was the case here. The beginning of this tension between Jesus and the crowd goes back to verse number 15, I remind you. Where it says, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountains by himself. Remember, they were looking for an earthly king to come and overthrow Roman rule and set up this earthly kingdom of which they would be a part. Well, Jesus wasn't about that. Okay, He's king. He is king of kings and lord of lords, but not the kind of king they were wanting. And so in this first case, it was Jesus who withdrew. And then after Jesus and the crowd, you remember, are reunited, as it were, at the synagogue in Capernaum, they start challenging and questioning him and grumbling at his responses. And they first openly challenge him in verse number 30. So they said to him there, "Then, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And after Jesus tells them that He is the bread of life, the true bread from heaven, they grumble. That seems to be the continuing pattern. Verse 41, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And this grumbling continues and it intensifies into a dispute in verse number 52 where it says the Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They found this incredulous. And finally, from questioning and challenging to grumbling and disputing, they begin to reject Jesus and his words More overtly, in verses 60 and 61, I want us to look at those again. It says, when many of the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? They were saying, I'm offended. I'm offended, right? They don't even want to listen to what Jesus is saying. They're like, "I, I, I can't. I can't. And Jesus knows they're offended. And so here's what we need to see, though. They're not offended because they do not understand what Jesus is saying, but because they do. While Jesus has certainly pushed the limits of what would be considered acceptable imagery for a Jewish audience by talking about eating flesh and drinking blood, they are more offended by who Jesus claims to be. And by what he has said about their need for him, than they are about any confusion over his language. It actually reminds me of one of my, f- my favorite Tim Keller quotes. Tim Keller, who uh, just recently went to be with the Lord, uh, greatly influenced um, those of us in pastoral circles, particularly, and have benefited greatly from his ministry and, uh, and his preaching. But he said this about the gospel. The gospel is that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. And yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. I want you to listen to those words again. The gospel is that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. One of the reasons that we say that the gospel is an offense to people is because sinful human beings find it offensive that they can't save themselves. At least, shouldn't I be able to have a part in this? Like, can't it be Jesus plus Mike's best efforts? Jesus plus Mike's good works? Jesus... Remember, it's Jesus plus nothing that equals everything. And this is why they found it so offensive. It says Samuel Samuel Clements, who is better known as Mark Twain by his pen name, once famously said, It ain't the parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. (laughs) And understand this. As good as you may think you are, and when you compare yourself to the common criminal, sure, you look pretty good. But your righteousness, the Bible says, is like filthy rags, dirty laundry. can't save yourself. So I want us to look at how the word is received here in these final verses of John chapter, uh, John chapter 6. I want us to consider hearing the words without the spirit. Jesus responds to this mounting rejection of his teaching by challenging the crowd and then by clarifying his meaning. And we see that in verses 61 through 63 again. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, which, by the way, when you and I grumble, and we, we do it too, right? Jesus knows. Like, you can't mutter something under your breath and, like, the Lord not catch that, okay? <laughs> like, he knows we grumble. And, and the word grumble is similar to the word in, in the old King James, the word murmur. That's a, for you English people, that's an onomatopoeia, right? I think that's what that's called. It's a word that sounds like what it means, so like when your kids grumble, it's like grumble. It's like, it's like, you know, it's like murmuring. That's, that's, what, that's what they're doing. And so it says Jesus clearly knows what's going on. And so he says, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? He's like, okay, how about this? How about if, if, if I just ascend right before your eyes back to heaven? If you don't believe I'm the true bread that came down from heaven, then what if you were to see that? It is the spirit who gives life, he goes on to say, the flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you, they are spirit and life. And so the first part of what Jesus says in his challenge to this crowd is over who he is and where he is from. And the heart of the grumbling, the disputing, and the offense of the crowd comes from the fact that Jesus has claimed to be the true bread from heaven. And the reason that was so offensive is because they thought they knew him, they knew where he was from, and who his parents were. So here's the thing, they were not prepared to accept that he is far greater than they ever imagined, and that they needed him in a far deeper and more personal way than they had believed. It goes right back to the way Tim Keller describes the gospel. They were not prepared to accept that he is far greater than they ever imagined and that they needed him in a far deeper and more personal way than they had believed. So if he had said, I am the Messiah, follow me and we'll overthrow Rome and we'll secure our freedom. That would have take, they would have been willing at that moment, I'm sure most of them, if not all of them, to take up arms and to follow Jesus even to the death, especially if he would miraculously feed them every day, right? They were not prepared for him to say, I have come down from heaven to give my flesh for the life of the world, and unless you believe in me, you have no life in you. That was more personal. That was more penetrating. That was more challenging and more deeply offensive. So to challenge them, Jesus asked how they would respond if they with their own eyes could see him ascend back into heaven. Would they respond in faith or would they even be more deeply offended? Would their objection be satisfied or would they simply harden themselves and still refuse to believe in him? So after he challenges the crowd, Jesus then clarifies to make sure they haven't misunderstood him. He says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. That verse both clarifies and further challenges these offended disciples. It clarifies for them that Jesus was not literally talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Okay, He wasn't preaching cannibalism. He's been using earthly flesh talk to describe spiritual realities. That's a common thing in scripture. But these words that clarify, they also challenge because the flesh is no help at all. That flew in the face of these people. Remember, they were the same ones who said, give us a list. Give us a checklist and we'll check every box. And we will somehow make ourselves acceptable. It's not unlike the Pharisees of our day. Which I remind you, Pharisees were not just a thing in Jesus' day. We still got them today. People who think, man, if I'm keeping the rules and I'm crossing the T's and I'm dotting the I's and I do this, 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 and this. And I'm I'm checking all those boxes. That is not the kind of relationship that the Lord desires to have with you. I mean, can you imagine if that's the kind of relationship I tried to maintain with my wife? Like, I, I desired to have no real communication with her, didn't ever desire to really spend much quality time with her, anything like that. But I carried around this list of things that I had been doing. Babe, I folded the laundry, I washed the dishes, sweetheart. Look, I did, I mowed the yard. Can you imagine if that was the basis, if that was the very core and the heart of our relationship? Just the stuff I was doing for her, or the stuff she did for me. That's a Pharisee to a large degree. It's that Pharisee who comes into church every week and it's like, check it out, Lord, I'm here again. In fact, I'm pretty close to getting an attendance pen, I'm pretty sure. All right? Hey, I'm not I'm not I'm not trying to discourage you from coming to church. But 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 I want you to see what is happening here with these people. They wanted this list of things to do. And that's the reason, to, to be honest with you, that a lot of people outside of the faith today, they view Christianity largely as this cataloged list of do's and don'ts. And that's primarily how they see the Bible. It's just a big list of do's and don'ts. And they fundamentally have no interest in that. And so when we live out that kind of stuff, like, no thanks. What they want to see is a growing, vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, the thing about this is some of this was getting mi- missed in the translation. That's why I want to talk about hearing the word without the Spirit. The Apostle Paul wrote this to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Jesus is not done yet, though. He goes on to say, But there are some of you who do not believe. Can you imagine standing there that day thinking that you were pretty pious? Thinking that you, that you, were, you, you were part of the group, you know? And Jesus says, and looking at them, it's like, But some of you here, you don't believe. And then John adds this parenthetical statement that says, For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Jesus shows that he knows their hearts. When he tells them that some of them don't believe, but he doesn't stop there. He goes on to tell them again why it is that some of them don't believe. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. So this is now the third time that Jesus has repeated this same core truth in this chapter alone. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will in no wise cast out. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then here in verse 65, no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. And notice what happens now. With this third statement of the truth that salvation is God's work and is impossible apart from Him, we get a, what appears to be a mass exodus of so-called disciples. Pretenders. Pretenders. There was a time not too many years ago in youth ministry culture uh, where it was not uncommon uh, to set up a scenario uh, that would uh, that, that would appear that we were living in a persecuted country. You'd like do this evening, and it would be like you want to focus on the persecuted church and everything, and like you would have people, you know, maybe in costume or whatever, come in and say, "All right, everybody who wants to be a follower of Jesus, stand against that wall," and you know, and that kind of thing. I, I mean, it's just like what what would it take for me uh, to, to 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 stop coming to church, for example? I mean, if it was something beyond just a, a, you know, like a, 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 an inconvenience, what if my faith was really challenged? What if I knew for the first time in my life here in the good old United States of America that I might truly be persecuted for my faith? And on this Memorial Day weekend, let us remember that there was a high price, the ultimate price paid by some individuals so that we can enjoy the freedoms that we have here, freedoms that we often take for granted. I got here this morning, I I drove the same route from my house, pulled over here and parked in the exact same parking spot that I park in over here by this bank, and I walked into this building, never once thought about whether I was going to meet any kind of persecution for being here. I, I wasn't thinking that at all. And to be honest with you, I wasn't especially grateful for the freedom of being able to do so, because it's so easy to take it for granted. And so we see the ranks here thinning a bit, okay? There are these these so-called disciples, these, these pretenders. It says in verses 66 and 67, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Jesus has now, it appears, uh, driven away almost all of these followers, the crowd. It's thinned. He has reduced this crowd from 5,000 men plus women and children down to like 12 is where the focus falls. And if you're keeping score, that's an attrition rate of 99.76%. By church growth standards, that ain't good. He's down to 0.24% of his original crowd, and then he turns to this small band, this 12, and he asks them, you want to go as well? We're going to separate the pretenders from the contenders, right? Doesn't Jesus know anything about church planting? I mean, he, he started off this chapter okay, right, with like 5,000 men plus women and children. That's a mega church by anybody's standards. Then he starts preaching the gospel and telling the truth, and he's, it's now we're focusing on 12. This is never going to work. How does he expect to start this worldwide movement? Here's how. Jesus isn't relying on the flesh. He's not. He's entirely dependent on the spirit. He could win a large crowd by continuing to offer free meals and impressive shows. But he knows that no one can truly come to him unless it is granted him by the Father. Spiritually dead people have to be made alive why we sang earlier, and I ran out of that, what, grave. <laughs> because before Jesus, I was doornailed dead in my sin. Spiritually dead. And why is it that Jesus has the words of eternal life? I want you to notice, <laughs> we see now this like, second group, those who hear the word by the Spirit. If there were those who were hearing without the Spirit, couldn't fully spiritually discern or understand what Jesus was saying, there were those who heard the word by the Spirit. And as he usually does, Peter speaks up for the rest of the 12 and he says, go. Go go where? (laughs) Peter confesses, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter gets it, understands, may not always agree with Jesus, sometimes argues with Jesus, um, but but he knows that you cannot go anywhere else. Jesus alone has the words of eternal life, and as followers of Jesus today, we need to ask ourselves whether this is our confession. Do we know and believe that Jesus alone has the words of eternal life? If we do, then where else can we go? Where else can we go? So often we try to fill the the voids in our lives with empty, dead chatter of the fallen, Christ-rejecting world in which we live, who do not go to Jesus, the one who has the words of life. And why is it that Jesus has the words of eternal life? Well, the second part of Peter's confession explains it. Verse 69 says, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the holy one of God the messiah the sent one he knows that jesus has the words of eternal life because he has believed and he has come to know that jesus is indeed the holy one of God and if that sounds like peter's maybe bragging just a little bit because i mean he's a you know he, he's a pretty he's a guy that's, that's inclined to like open his mouth and insert his foot at times right Jesus makes it clear. He says, did not I choose you, the 12? (laughs) Peter's faith is certainly commendable, but it doesn't ultimately come from Peter. Peter has been given by the Father to the Son. So the Son has chosen him and will, will not cast him out, Scripture says. But then I want us to notice in verses 70 and 71, as we wrap things up here this morning, I want you to notice two key words nestled in those two verses, very important. It says, Jesus answered them, Did not I choose you, the twelve? And then notice the next two words. It'd be easy to just kind of fly over them. And yet, and yet, one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Those two words introduce for us what is a very sobering conclusion to the end of this sixth chapter of John's gospel. And yet, Jesus spoke of Judas, the son of Simon the Scar- Iscariot, one of the twelve who was going to betray him. We find out these words that the followers of Jesus had now been reduced from 5,000 plus to 12 to now 11. Why did John end this section of this gospel with this downer? Because you got to remember, chronologically speaking, it'll be somewhere around a year before Judas actually betrays Jesus. And yet Jesus already sees what no one else yet sees, that Judas is his betrayer. That's why it is so significant that Jesus washed all 12 of the disciples' feet. He washed the feet of the one he knew would betray him. Please join me. P- please join me in saying, if you were in those sandals, you wouldn't do the same thing. If I knew what Jesus knew about Judas, I'd be like, you, you're fired. I'm sure not going to bend down and wash your feet I ain't doing that. This all reinforces the central truth of this chapter that God is sovereign over all. Whether people are believing in Jesus, rejecting Jesus, betraying Jesus, God is sovereign over all. This is the key central lesson of John chapter 6. We saw it in the beginning of the chapter when Jesus set up the feeding of the 5,000 in the wilderness on the mountain there. We saw it when he walked on the water and then immediately transported his disciples to the shore at Capernaum. And after they struggled all night, we see it when the crowds came to question him. And he took Psalm 78 verse 24, uh, which he quoted to them. And he used it as the basis of what we've called the bread of life discourse. The crowd Rejected his teaching and walked away. And now we see it at the end of his identification with one of his 12 handpicked disciples as a devil. The disciples don't know what Jesus means exactly, but he does. For he is the Lord and he knows all. Earlier in the second half of verse number 64, John had concluded, or included, in in a parenthetical aside again, in case somehow we could read this chapter and still kind of miss this central truth. He said, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe, and who it was that would betray him. So Jesus chose his 12 disciples and also knew from the beginning who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. This perfect knowledge of Jesus should be a comfort to us. Whether the crowds are gathering by the thousands looking for a miracle or walking away, shaking their heads in disbelief, Jesus knew it all from the beginning. It wasn't as if in this moment he turns to the disciples and he's like, didn't see that coming. No, he knew. So I want to close with these key truths that we need to know and understand from John chapter 6. Number one, our satisfaction and salvation can be found only in Jesus. The true bread from heaven, the bread of life. Number two, we must truly believe in Jesus, receive him, rest upon him, eat and drink him with our souls if we are to have satisfaction and salvation. It's not just a mental ascent. It's not just some mental assent that Jesus is a great man, a good leader, a great teacher. Number three, our coming to Jesus and believing in him is entirely dependent on the grace of God. The one who gives us to Jesus and draws us to trust in him. Our staying in Jesus is entirely secured by the purpose of God and the commitment of Christ who has promised to never cast out and raise us up on the last day. And everything that happens, no matter how it appears to us, no matter how tempted we may be to say, God, I think you're off your game right now. How did you let this one slip through? Because I certainly deserve better than this. (laughs) No matter how it appears to us, was known by Jesus from the beginning and ordained by God according to his wisdom and for his purposes. God is sovereign over all. One preacher said it this way, he is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. That's why when we sing the old hymn, I surrender all, we don't sing I surrender some. We don't sing I surrender most. We sing I surrender all because he's sovereign over all. So if we could bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment as we Moving to a time of decision today, in just a few moments together we are going to observe the Lord's Supper. If you're a guest today, you might be wondering, is it permissible for me to partake with this church family if I'm not a member of the church? We practice what we sometimes call a close communion. So you're not required to be a member of First Baptist Church, but it is very important to us that your testimony be one of faith in Christ. That relationship is clearly between you and God alone. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the clear teaching that you are the only way to us having a reconciled relationship with holy God as sinful human beings. You paid a debt you did not owe so that we could live a life we could in no way deserve or earn. Lord, again, we acknowledge that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, and at the same time more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. If there's anyone here today that has never trusted you as Savior and Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit and the power of your word, they abandon their self-righteousness and place their faith and trust in you and you alone. I pray that that is our testimony. Lord, we love you, we thank you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You would remain seated now as Griff comes to lead us in the Lord's Supper. Uh,
0: the, the deacons will be coming by and passing out the elements. Just a little reminder, a little hint. Uh, I want you to go ahead and you can open uh, the bread first. That's the way it works. And then uh, the cup after that. And so this morning, uh, just as we've walked through the last five weeks through John chapter 6 where Jesus proclaims he's the bread of life I want to read some of those scriptures over us of what we're doing today and what this uh, what this means and so uh, just listen as I read these scriptures that we've studied deeply over the last several weeks but Jesus says this truly truly I say to you you are seeking me not because you saw signs but because you ate your fill of the loaves do not work For the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do? Right? And now what we do, we ask God what Mike preached about today. What must we do? We want to work for this salvation. What must we do as if there's an action to gain God's love? And he says, what must we do to To be doing the works of God. And Jesus answered them. And this is in big time bold print in my notes here. But just in reflection of what this says. This is the work of God. That you believe in him who he has sent. This is the work of God. Not your work. And what we're doing today is a remembrance of his work. And his work in our life and over our life. And is the hope of our life. Jesus went on and said to them. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you had seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing and all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this will be the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him, get that, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's our hope. That's the gospel, and that's what we celebrate and commemorate and remember here today that Christ is the true bread of life. And so, and just a, I want to give you a moment of introspection of prayer. And if you haven't already done that, just to kind of close your eyes just, just uh, to block out what's going around. And just remember this, that the Passover was at hand, it tells us in chapter 6. That the commemoration of the last plague of Egypt, those who had placed the blood of the lamb over the doorposts, their home was spared. And that historic event was a prelude to what would happen in just days to come from John chapter six on the cross. And it would fulfill this. This is the work of God that you believe in Him who was sent. And I just want you to pray the gospel over yourself, a thanksgiving of what God has done for you in this time. As we join us together. Will you take your bread? And as Jesus said, take and eat. This is my body. And as you take the cup, Jesus said, take the cup and drink it for this is my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. In closing today, let's just thank God for this day. Dear God, we come before you and we thank you for what you are doing in our lives, what you've done in our lives, what you've done in the believers' lives through history that leads us to follow this act of communion that ties with the saints, that ties with your disciples. God, we thank you for what you've done in history to lead us to what you do in our lives now. We thank you for that. We thank you for this time of worship. but God. Today, we're reminded that we're not alone because there's saints in heaven cheering us on, but not only that, God, you're worshiped throughout the world. And we thank you for the languages that are honoring you today. They're lifting their voices up all throughout the world and worship you, and we get to join them and the angels in worshiping you today. God, we thank you for what you do in our lives and how you impact our world and the world through our lives and may you even do so in the days to come and it's in your holy most awesome name i pray amen thank you for listening to this message from first baptist church of Van alstein for more information about our church visit www.fbcva.com